Welcome to Cato Audio for September 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Randy Barnett evaluates the Obamacare ruling. Ginger McCall calls out TSA for ignoring the law. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon talks about illegal government surveillance of Americans. And economist Stephen Landsberg tells the greatest story ever told. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The Supreme Court in this uh, most recent term had uh, several very interesting cases. We've already talked a little bit about the the big decision, the Obamacare decision. But we're going to talk about some of the other very important cases from this most recent term just ahead of the Cato Institute's Constitution Day, which officially is on September 17th. Cato will mark the event on September 18th, 2012, when we unveil the latest edition of the Cato Supreme Court Review and have great many very talented speakers talking about uh, these cases, many of whom have written articles that will be featured in the Cato Supreme Court Review. Right now, I'm talking with Trevor Burris, a legal associate at the Cato Institute, and Jim Harper, director of information policy studies at the Cato Institute. And we're going to talk just a little bit about some of the cases that are important for liberty in the United States and uh, that going forward. So Trevor and Jim, welcome. Good to be here. Nice to be with you. So just to start, Trevor, with some of the cases you're going to talk about, Jim Harper is going to give us an in-depth review of why a couple of uh, civil liberties cases really do matter. But let's start with one, which is a civil liberties case, which is Knox v. SEIU. This is a case that deals with free speech and really goes to the core of what constitutes having your rights violated, what constitutes compelled support and coercion, essentially. Exactly. If you consider free speech or more specifically the freedom not to speak if you don't want to an important civil liberty, which I think most people would, then Knox is absolutely crucial. Knox concerns whether or not or when unions can take money from you in order to spend on their political advocacy. And since the 70s, the court has said that unions can take money from people who are not members of unions, what are called agency fees. And they can take money from those people in order to spend on core collective bargaining activities. They cannot take money from those non-union members in order to spend on pure political advocacy. And in order to protect that, they have to give notice to those non-union members about when they're going to spend something on pure political advocacy. The Knox case arose out of a California public sector union. So this is government employees who are not members of the union who are having money taken from them to spend to oppose a ballot initiative in California that would have strengthened the rights of them as non-union members, which is really ironic. And the union in this case really wasn't contesting almost any of the facts. There was no real argument about what the facts of the case were. They were not saying it was really just over what constitutes you having your rights protected. Is it opting into a system? Is that how we have to protect your rights? Or is allowing you to opt out of this system sufficient to protect your rights against having your money used against your will to promote speech you don't like? Yes. Imagine you're a union member or more specifically, you're not a union member. You work in an industry as part of the government and you have said, I do not want to be part of that union. And then what the case law works now and even after this case is that in order for them to spend your money on political advocacy, you have to affirmatively say, I don't want them to spend my money on political advocacy, which is the opt-out procedure. In some basic sense, that presumes your consent unless you act affirmatively, which seems kind of crazy. 
What is really important about the decision in the Knox case is that the court came very close to saying what we in the Cato Institute said in our brief and what many people have said for a long time, which is the only justifiable way to preserve people's free speech right not to speak is to only allow an opt-in procedure, which is that you have to affirmatively say, I want to speak on this, particularly if you've gone to the trouble of exempting yourself from the union in general. And this line of thinking has uh, pretty far-reaching implications in many cases, especially with uh, how the organs of the deceased might be treated. You might be asked to opt out of a system of using your organs after you have died when, of course, we would agree that opting into such a system is uh, the only appropriate way to handle it. Exactly. It's sort of just a question of what is the baseline assumption. Are you presuming consent? Or are you presuming dissent? It seems quite obvious that if you are not in the union, you should presume dissent. And what they said in this case in the eventual holding was that when they collect a little bit more money, actually a fair amount more money than they were going to collect originally for political speech, they can only do that by affirmatively seeking the consent of the non-union members as opposed to the opt-out procedure. Moving on to another case, FCC versus Fox television stations. This uh, dealt with this issue of so-called fleeting expletives. And of course, the argument that the Cato Institute made in uh, its brief shared with some other groups, including the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Center for Democracy and Technology, Public Knowledge and Tech Freedom, is that broadcast communications are deserving of very stringent First Amendment protection. Yes. Right now, what we have in this country is a different First Amendment standard for over-the-air broadcast versus cable television. Now, this is something that a lot of people know about from the older generation, when people who remember when cable didn't exist. One of the good things about cable is that you were free from FCC's regulations, but if you were broadcasting over the air so people could capture your signal with antenna, then the First Amendment protections were less because the court called those TV waves entering your house something like an unwanted intruder that kids could just turn on the TV and suddenly see stuff. This goes back to the actually the George Carlin case of seven words that you can't say on television, which ironically went to the Supreme Court. And we still live in a system right now where these over-the-air broadcasters get less First Amendment protection because they're licensed by the FCC than cable providers, than Netflix, and all these things. And what we said in our brief was that that is just ridiculous at this point. I actually have a friend, a 22-year-old friend I recently found out, she didn't even know that broadcast television existed. And I'm finding this more and more that nowadays this old distinction is just kind of ridiculous. Jim Harper. This was a chance for the court to go back to Pacifica, if I recall correctly, the the case that established this idea that, that broadcast communication is pervasive and thus something that the public can regulate. But it didn't do that, did it? What basis did this case come out on? No, the court punted on going back and revisiting the distinction. The eventual decision was based on peer administrative law in the sense of whether or not the regulation that the FCC had put forward for Fox and NBC and other people to follow in terms of nudity on television and so-called fleeting expletives, which are just sort of curse words on award shows. They're often on award shows. Bono and Cher said some of these curse words, whether or not they had been given fair notice that the FCC would prosecute them. And the court said that they were not given fair notice, but they did not 
change the underlying system of First Amendment applies less to broadcast television than it does to uh, cable and other types of media. So what you got was a good due process decision, the right decision, but not the strong First Amendment case that it could have been. Exactly. And I think it was very close. There's been some supposition that it was a 4-4 case and they couldn't get all the way. So they went for this medium result. But there's probably room to challenge us in the future. And if the FCC keeps bringing these enforcement actions, this could change very quickly and hopefully it will. Okay. In case uh, the fact are a little muddled, but the implications are very important. Christopher versus SmithKline Beecham Corporation. This really goes to the core, I think, of the rule of law. That is, what do words mean when administrative agencies use them? And to what extent do we allow agencies to redefine words and uh, change in fundamental ways, certain laws. Precisely. I'm not going to get too into the facts of this. Suffice it to say, it is about when an agency can change the definition of the term outside salesman for the purpose of overtime. In this case, specifically, it was about pharmaceutical drug salespeople who work more than 40 hours a week, and they don't actually create sales. They're not allowed to sell directly to doctors. They create unofficial obligations, and whether or not they can be considered people who don't have to get overtime pay. And so for 70 years, the agency had considered them exempt from overtime pay until they decided as part of a court filing in a case in 2009 that they were going to change the definition to suddenly include them. Now, historically speaking, we give the agencies deference when they interpret certain things about them, about their own regulations. But in this case, it was very important. The court said we're not going to give deference to the agency changing its mind in the middle of litigation about the definition of what an outside salesman is. What are the implications of the case? The implications are vast. These are one of these cases that seem very boring. But if we're going to give the agencies less deference to have arbitrary government and create arbitrary rules and redefine things arbitrarily, then cases like this, which are somewhat, you know, boring on the facts, become incredibly important for all the agencies, all the regulations, and whether or not they can just change the definition of them, just change it whenever they want as part of a court filing, as part of an inner office memo, as part of a cocktail party hour, oh, suddenly we're changing everything. I'm being a little bit facetious, but it got to that point almost. And so we can pull that back a little bit. And we have a case, our friends at the Institute for Justice are currently engaged in a case of where the IRS has effectively created a licensing regime that doesn't really have any foundation in statute, but certainly there's some deference going on with the IRS trying to create that regulation. Yes, and this case could have impact on that case. Jim Harper? I'll just say that this is an important case, as Trevor said, because it starts to push back on the sort of cascading unconstitutionalism that you see in the federal government today, where first Congress delegates huge swaths of authority, more than it probably constitutionally should, though we not, don't have good constitutional the on it. Notwithstanding non-delegation doctrine right. that is in the Constitution. The, uh, the ironically dead. named. <laughs> so it delegates huge amounts of authority. Then agencies promulgate rules. The rules, though, are not the actual binding law because some guidance document will become the actual binding thing. And then beneath the guidance document, there might be a letter or a commentary or I'll join Trevor. It might be something someone said at a cocktail party becomes the rule that the agency upholds as having been violated in a given case. So that's that cascade just all the way down to the last minute change of mind on the part of a regulator turns out to be the difference between violating the law and not. It's outrageous that, that we have a government that acts this way. We have another case here, essentially liberty versus administrative power, Sackett versus EPA. This was a case of whether or not people could even bring a case to challenge 
a federal regulation. What was the outcome there? Yes, yeah, so going back to, as Jim said, sort of the ever-present war against arbitrary government and how much deference we're going to give these agencies. In this case, which is an astounding 9-0, all of the justices agreed that the EPA had gone too far on this. Basically, they had determined, just internal to their own mechanisms, that the Sackett couple who had purchased a plot of land in Idaho that was going to be their dream house, they had determined that it was a wetland that was not in compliance with the uh, Clean Water Act. And the Sacketts were incurring fines of up to $75,000 a day if they did not move forward with trying to comply with the EPA's orders. What they wanted to do was challenge the actual letter that said they were not in compliance with the Clean Water Act. But the EPA had said, you're not allowed to do that. You cannot challenge our determination that you are not in compliance and that we're going to fine you $75,000 a day. You have to move forward through our procedures before you can challenge that. And they took it all the way to the Supreme Court to simply say, we want to be able to challenge this. We want to be able to at least bring evidence to the EPA to say that, no, you're wrong. By your own standards, we do not live on a wetland. And nine justices said, yes, of course, you can absolutely do that. We do not live in a crazy state where suddenly regulators can just determine something and fine you $75,000 a day until you move forward with adjudication. And, and create impediments to legal process, essentially. Absolutely, yes. The impediment here is, of course, the $75,000 a day, and they first would have to move the gravel they had put on the land. It would be an extreme cost for them to do this, and they just wanted to say, hey, we're not even in your game yet because you're wrong in determining that we live on a wetland. Jim Harper, you and I have talked before about this very important case, Jones v. United States, dealing with essentially how free we are to have our information protected, our personal effects in a sense, in a modern sense of that word. Tell us about that case. Well, yeah. United States versus Jones is probably the most important Fourth Amendment decision in a generation, but it sets up the next case, which will be the really important one because Jones throws Fourth Amendment doctrine into play. We'll see what happens with it. I'll lay out some of the facts and then get into the decision. Antoine Jones was a nightclub operator in the northeast quadrant of the District of Columbia. had a club called Levels. I never had the pleasure of going there. But he came under the suspicion of local law enforcement and DEA of being a drug dealer, a cocaine dealer specifically. The law enforcement agents went and got a warrant to use a GPS device on his car to figure out where he was going. The warrant permitted them to attach the device within 10 days in the District of Columbia. And what they did was they attached the GPS device to his Jeep Grand Cherokee on the 11th day in Maryland. Now, jurisdiction, physical jurisdiction is very important to courts, and that was clearly a defective warrant. And actually, the government didn't argue that there was a technical error and that they should be ruled within the warrant except for the technicality. The government argued that they didn't need a warrant in order to track Jones using this GPS device because basically everything he did was done in public. You don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy about things you do in public, do you? Well, the district court ruled in favor of the government, basically following orthodox reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine, said, no, everything was in public except when the car was in the garage, so we're going to exclude that evidence. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, though, reversed, also using reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine. It found that reasonable expectations apply to the sum total of your movements over the course of a month. The data that the law enforcement collected over four weeks using the GPS device amounted to 2,000 pages. The appeals court said, no, actually one has an expectation of privacy in that vast amount of information about your movements. The government appealed that, obviously, and so it was brought to the court where there was a fascinating split. 
the justices were nine to nothing that the government could not track people using GPS without a warrant, but they split almost perfectly evenly as to why. Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion and actually used logic that we offered in a Cato Institute brief, though one can't claim credit for it, that rather than using reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine, which we saw in the lower courts could go either way, there's really no principle behind it, he said that the invasion of Jones's property is what caused there to be an illegal search or a search that being unreasonable was illegal, unconstitutional under the Fourth Amendment. That invasion of a property right is a return in a way to original thinking about the Fourth Amendment because in the early years of our republic, obviously, the home and the property around it was where the intimacies occurred, where you discussed things with your family. We discussed family matters with your family. You discussed your political beliefs and, and all those activities. So the home really was a proxy for Fourth Amendment protection. Property was a proxy for Fourth Amendment protection. And so in a way, Scalia went back to more original thinking about the Fourth Amendment, finding that even a marginal, tiny invasion of property was enough to get you into Fourth Amendment reasonableness analysis. And I think that was a very important thing for reasons I'll expand on in a moment, perhaps. Justice Alito, another conservative, was actually against that rationale. Now, he supported the decision as it was a unanimous court, but he didn't think that what he called 18th century tort law was an appropriate way to judge uh, modern Fourth Amendment cases. He would have preferred to use the reasonable expectation of privacy test. He didn't really articulate how he would use it, but evidently he would probably adopt a theory like the D.C. Circuit had adopted that a, a huge amount of information one has an expectation of privacy in. The most interesting decision is probably Justice Sotomayor's. She concurred with the majority, so that's why it was the majority in their rationale. But she also agreed with Justice Alito. You read her opinion and it's sort of like she's making pains to say, we guys, can we all get along here? But most interesting, she said that the court might want to look again at what's called the third party doctrine. That's a doctrine arising from some early 70s Bank Secrecy Act cases where the court held under the Fourth Amendment and under the reasonable expectation of privacy test, somebody doesn't have an expectation of privacy and thus Fourth Amendment protection as to records that one shares with a third party. In the early cases, this was with bankers. It has been extended to information one shares with one's telephone service provider and arguably it hasn't been tested yet would extend to perhaps medical information that one shares with a health network. It could extend to your emails, all the communications that you share with your ISP and so on and so forth. So we had a fascinating decision, almost perfectly evenly split, but relying technically on a property argument. And it, the door is now open for Fourth Amendment doctrine to be revamped, hopefully in a better way than using reasonable expectation tests. So Justice Sotomayor here, by way of asking for a reexamination of this third party doctrine, I mean, in the sweep of it today, as you point out, is very broad. Every document we write in the cloud, every keystroke is recorded in some way. So you go to your Google Docs folder and you type a document. You can go back to any version of that document. This is a very broad potential amount of information. I think the third-party doctrine was wrong in the early 70s. But it grows more wrong with each passing year and with the growth of technology, obviously, the internet over which we share lots and lots of information. Thinking in terms of the content, the meaning of the information of the individual, we're sharing with third parties highly personal information that we had no capacity to do so in the 70s. But we're sharing it all the time with third parties. And so the third party doctrine, which was bad, has gotten worse due to the quality and the content, the amount of information that we share with third parties all the time. It's just one of the real weaknesses of reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine. 
Everybody loves it, and frankly, many of the lawyers I talk to, they seem to believe that reasonable expectation of is a prefix to the word privacy. I disagree with them about that. Privacy is a real thing that sometimes, irregardless of expectations, exists. But the reasonable expectation of privacy test reverses what the Fourth Amendment doctrine calls for. It examines the reasonableness of people's thinking about their privacy. Fourth Amendment bars unreasonable searches and seizures, putting the focus on whether the government is being reasonable or not, not whether we're being reasonable in thinking about these things. It requires courts to do sort of societal, broad, sweeping explanations or analyses to uphold the doctrine, rather than looking at the actual facts in cases. And what I argued in this brief at what is in the article that is coming out, I wrote in the Cato Supreme Court Review, and in a case coming to the court this fall, I talked about the fact that privacy is a real thing you can determine factually. And it depends on whether the photons, the sound waves, the actual media that convey information are available to a person or not. It's a little cute perhaps to go so technical about it. But as a matter of fact, when we put on clothes in the morning, those clothes bar photons from passing through, bouncing back, and reflecting in people's eyes the appearance of the body, the colors, the textures, the specifics of it. So the information about the appearance of our bodies is private. It's the same way when somebody picks up a telephone and talks. Think, Let's talk in terms of the old-style circuit switch telephone. When someone picks up a telephone, the diaphragm in the microphone converts the sound wave into an electric signal that passes along a wire silently and invisibly until the wire reaches the other end of the telephone call, at which time the sound is reproduced. Silently and invisibly along the wire means that that conversation is private while it's in motion, as a matter of fact, not a matter of what people expect or what people think. The reasonable expectation of privacy test is tautological. If a court says you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, well, you do. If a court says you do not, you don't. And we've seen the federal government over years, but especially over the last decade, arguing that you shouldn't have an expectation of privacy because then they can go to court and establish that one doesn't have an expectation of privacy in information that the government wants to access. Now, another case that you're uh, writing about, Florida v. Hardines, Hardines, Hardine. We don't know the pronunciation. Okay. I've guessed that it might be Jardines, but it might be Hardines or Hardines. But a, this also, a Florida case. This case also deals with I guess, olfactory evidence that may or may not be provided to the police using dogs. It does indeed. I've talked a lot about, you know, the tech of things. But because Fourth Amendment doctrine is now open, we don't know which direction it's going to go. I authored a brief with Cato colleagues for the court in this case where I argue that it should apply not reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine, but natural meanings of the words search and seizure to determine whether there has been a search or a seizure. And we're talking about a search in this case. Law enforcement in Florida got a tip that this house was being used as a marijuana grow operation, an uncorroborated tip which did not uh, satisfy a probable cause requirements. But what they did is they took a drug-sniffing dog and walked up the walk to the front door of the house and the dog signaled on the house, which they then used, that information they then used to go get a warrant, search the house, and they, they found the marijuana that they uh, suspected they would find there. So the question is whether walking the dog up to the front door of the house is a search or not. And going back to that maybe rather precise approach, I said in this brief, a drug-sniffing dog makes perceptible things that are otherwise not perceptible. Their sense of smell is some tens of thousands of times greater than the human sense of smell. And an individual walking up to the front door, which one might be entitled to do, a law enforcement officer even interested in finding criminal wrongdoing, might have a right to be on the property. We put that issue aside. But coming up there and smelling the doorway, a law enforcement officer would probably not smell it. The dog did. 
It was a search to take a, an instrument, in this case a dog, just like a GPS device where they're very, very different in their, their makeup, but they did the very same thing, which was to make something perceptible that otherwise wasn't. I suggested that the court should use that rather than go back to the old, you know, the home is a man's castle kind of thing because we will need better doctrine in the future as more high-tech cases come along, as we continue to deal with internet cases and shared information. We need better doctrine. We need doctrine that relies on the language of the Fourth Amendment, barring unreasonable searches and seizures, rather than this now nearly, I think, 39 years long experiment with using reasonable expectations and asking courts to guess at what society believes and then work backwards from that to Fourth Amendment protection. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Trevor Burris, a legal associate at the Cato Institute, and Jim Harper, director of information policy studies at the Cato Institute. You can find out more about Constitution Day at our website, cato.org. The Supreme Court upheld most of the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, but the court may have also made the next round of litigation easier on the attorneys who oppose government control of health care. That, according to Cato Institute senior fellow Randy Barnett, he spoke at the Cato Institute just days after the ruling. Last week, the decision, as you all know, did not go the way we hoped it would, and this was a real crushing blow to liberty, and it was a crushing blow to myself. So I was uh, pretty devastated by the loss, and I'm still devastated by the loss. And I want to say that up front because I'm going to say some positive things that came out of this case, and I don't want to be characterized as somehow spinning the outcome or uh, uh, putting an unrealistic, optimistic view on the outcome. In fact, it was a bad day, and it was a bad loss. But just because it was a bad day and a bad loss does not mean it could not have been worse, because it could have been. And I think that under circumstances like this, to engage in a kind of extreme doom and gloom that denies the stuff that we accomplished, while still bemoaning what we'd failed to accomplish, is actually to give the other side a bigger victory than they, in fact, obtained. So that's what I want to emphasize today. And in order to explain that, I want to suggest that there were actually two, the reason why this case was so big, the reason why this case was historic, and the reason why the Supreme Court granted a historic three days of oral argument is because there were two, not one, but two huge issues on the table in this case. The first was on Obamacare. The first was on the issue of whether the government in this country would control our medical care. And if the government does control our medical care, I believe, as do others, that that will fundamentally alter the relationship of individuals to the government and essentially change our form of government to one more closely approximating, or our political system, to one more closely approximating Western Europe. Now, I don't have anything against Western Europe. I like going there. They have nice buildings and the food is good. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I necessarily want to live under their political system, a social welfare, social democracy. And if this particular bill was to remain in a law, then I believe that is the inevitable outcome. So that was huge. The second huge thing that was on the table with this law was the Constitution of the United States, our constitutional form of government, and in particular, that part of our form of government which says that the federal government is one of limited and enumerated powers. This has been the principle that this country has stood for from its founding. It's a principle that the Supreme Court has never denied and often affirmed. It didn't deny it in the New Deal. It didn't deny it during the Warren Court. 
It didn't deny it during the Great Society. It has never denied it. But if the individual mandate, which is the core of this bill, which was enacted by Congress under its Commerce Clause authority, was going to be upheld in this case under the Commerce Clause authority, then the theories by which it was going to be upheld were going to eliminate the enumerated power scheme because the theory under which this could be regulated under the commerce power, anything could be regulated under the commerce power. And essentially what we would have at the end of that litigation would be a national problems clause in the Constitution. So now let's talk about what was decided last week. What was decided last week was that there are five votes for the proposition, five votes of the Supreme Court for the proposition that every law professor on the other side said was frivolous when we went into this debate, and that is that there are limited and enumerated powers, that the individual insurance mandate as drafted exceeds Congress's limited and enumerated powers under the Commerce Clause, that in fact the Commerce Clause is restricted to regulating commerce or activity, economic activity that has a substantial effect on interstate commerce, and it does not reach inactivity. It does not reach people who are not doing anything. It does not give Congress the power to mandate economic activity in order then to regulate it. That's what the court decided. Five votes. That was the position that 99.9% of law professors and legal experts says was a frivolous position. Their position that Congress had an unlimited power, a discretionary power to address national problems, that position did not command five votes. That position commanded, at best, four votes. So if we are told that the meaning of the Constitution is not the original meaning of the Constitution, which is what I maintain, but it's what the Supreme Court says that the Constitution means, then if that's what we were told by those who believe in a living Constitution, then under that, those rules of engagement, we have five votes for the proposition that both the government is of limited enumerated powers, that the Commerce Clause is restricted in the way that we maintain from day one, and that the individual insurance mandate exceeded that restriction. Now, I consider that to be major, because the alternative would have been so much worse. And I don't think it is spinning, and I don't think it is putting an unrealistic gloss on what happened to say that that's what happened. Let me put this another way. If you were in a war, and you were in a big battle, and you lost that big battle, and it was a big one, but during the course of that battle, you gained some terrain. At the end of the day, after having lost that battle, but still engaged in the same war, would you then surrender that terrain you gained because you lost the battle? Of course not. Nobody would do that. And that's the situation we found ourselves in. We've actually moved constitutional law on the books in a positive direction because the position that has now been affirmed by five justices was not on the books in so explicit a form that law professors who teach constitutional law could say, oh, well, of course, that's at least a reasonable position. They, not, they said it wasn't even a reasonable position. And now it's the law, or it's the law of five justices. All right, so now, where do we go from here? The way this happened is highly significant. Imagine that we're actually in 1935, and in 1935, the Supreme Court strikes down the minimum wage law by a five to four vote. What's coming after that? What's coming after that is 1937, when as a result of public pressure and the Democratic administration, the New Deal is then reauthorized, a different version of it is reauthorized, and it's upheld by a five to four vote based on another switch by a different Justice Roberts, the so-called switch in time that saved nine. We could be at this point in 1935, only we, our position is the position that could conceivably emerge later. Why? 
because for the first time in my lifetime, the American people, and, and by that I don't mean every single person, of course, but I mean the people who are engaged in public affairs and people who follow these things. The American people have been following this case since before the lawsuits were filed. The American people have been following every decision that's been made. The American people were riveted by the decision that was made last week. They were engaged, and they were aware, and a majority of them thought that the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional, and a majority of them thought that the Supreme Court would find it unconstitutional, and they were deeply disappointed by what happened last week. That is a fact. And now what happens? Well, I don't believe the meaning of the Constitution changes, but the meaning of constitutional law, the substance of constitutional law, of course that changes with the different composition of the Supreme Court. And how does the Supreme Court change? It changes the same way it's always changed. An elected president nominates, and an elected Senate confirms the next justice. That's what they always do. And then the question is, which justices do you pick for the next justice? That's gonna be determined by an election. So here's the reason why, if I had to choose which of those two things we were fighting, Obamacare or to preserve the Constitution, if I had to choose, if you put a gun to my head and mandated that I had to choose which one of those things... No, 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 I we would... can only tax you if you don't do it, right? right. That's right. <laughs> if you tax me in order to make me choose this, here's what I would have chosen. I think I would have chosen the Constitution because it is within the power of the electorate to reverse Obamacare. It's not going to be easy and it's not a guarantee, but it's something that can be done. And we have an election teed up in order to do that. That's what this election should also be about. And if it is made to be about that, if the American people are so upset or so offended by what happened last week, and we'll, time will tell if that's true or not, but if that's true and this is made into that issue, so that the next president actually does nominate better justices than they've been nominated in the past, then we could be standing at the threshold of what Bruce Ackerman at Yale Law School calls a constitutional moment, in which, from now on, justices are going to be selected because they're committed to the written constitution, including the enumerated power scheme, and they're going to be selected because they have the character to resist pressure to the contrary. And if that happens, we will look back upon this day, this week, as the turning point that was actually necessary to occur for that to happen. Now, am I predicting that it will happen? No, I am not. And in that sense, it's not optimistic in that sense. I'm not predicting it either way. I didn't predict the way this case was going to come out, not once. And I'm not predicting the way the election is going to come out. And I'm not predicting what a Republican president and a Republican Senate would do if they won. I'm just saying that an election is a prerequisite to a constitutional moment and the seeds of a constitutional moment have been sowed by our law challenge, our legal challenge, and by the ruling this week, and by the way that ruling was made. And as a result of that, there is reason for hope, and it's counterproductive for conservatives and libertarians to be completely pessimistic and have nothing but doom and gloom about what happens or is what is likely to happen. Now is the time to hitch up and go to town and ensure that this potential for a constitutional moment that we now see takes place, that this, in fact, is our 1935, and what's coming is going to be our 1937. The Transportation Security Administration, TSA, is perhaps the most invasive and visible federal agency. You would think that an agency that takes naked photos of travelers and otherwise conducts invasive and humiliating searches would be first in line to make sure it's following the letter of the law. But that's apparently not the case. 
At a Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing, Ginger McCall of the Electronic Privacy Information Center detailed how the agency has refused court orders to be more transparent about how it conducts those naked body scans. In 2009, the DHS announced that it was going to start a pilot program with WBI technology used as a primary screening method. There had been some discussion before that of body scanner technology being used as a secondary screening method. That is, if you're going through the airport and you go through the initial screening method, which would in this case be the metal detector, and then something happens, the metal detector goes off, you would be directed to a secondary screening method. So not everyone would start off by going through the body scanner. That was how it was originally envisioned. When DHS put this technology out here, out there and started discussing it, it was envisioned as a secondary screening technology. But in 2009, they announced that they were going to start a pilot program, which would make this technology the primary screening technology in airports. And at that point, Epic sent a letter to the agency petitioning it to undertake a public notice and comment rulemaking. So the same thing that we're still asking for now about three years later. And we cited the fact that these machines are highly invasive. As Jim discussed, they essentially take a naked picture of a person and project it up on a computer for some TSA official to look at. Um, And we also thought that we'd like to get more details on these machines. So we filed several Freedom of Information Act requests with the agency. The agency, of course, punted its deadlines under the Freedom of Information Act, and so we ended up filing suit under that act to obtain the documents that we had requested. And when we finally got those documents in 2010, we saw some things that were not entirely unexpected, but still quite troubling. We found in those documents, in the TSA's own procurement specifications and operational requirements documents, that these machines were not designed to detect powdered explosives. We found that the privacy filters that TSA was touting around the country is saying, you know, you're safe, there are privacy filters on these machines. Those privacy filters can be turned off. We found, most troublingly perhaps, that the machines were capable of storing and transferring the images that were captured. So that very graphic naked image could be stored, it could be transferred uh, easily via USB. So we took these documents out to the public, and this factored into our eventual calculation to sue the agency. In 2010, the agency, DHS, decided that it was going to move forward with putting the body scanners in the airports as primary screening technology. So it did its pilot program, decided that it was going to continue to push out these machines into the American airports. And Epic sent a second petition to the agency, uh, along with a bunch of other groups uh, who signed on to this petition. We asked the agency to suspend the program because of the privacy concerns. We said that the program should be suspended, the agency should reconsider. And at that point, a little later in 2010, we decided that we were just going to sue the agency because they never replied to our two petitions. They continued to simply roll out the body scanners into the airports. So we filed suit, as Jim mentioned, under the Fourth Amendment and under the APA, as well as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the court ruled in our favor on the APA issue. On the Fourth Amendment issue, there were some some problems, as Jim said, that they had adopted completely the agency's statement of facts. The agency claims that there's an effective opt-out. And what we saw in the documents that we received back from the agency, we got thousands of pages of traveler complaints. And those complaints indicated that, in fact, there is no effective opt-out. Oftentimes, travelers are not informed by the agency that they are permitted to opt-out of the machines. And even if they do opt-out, they're subject to a retaliatory and very invasive pat-down. But unfortunately, the court adopted the agency's characterization that there was an effective opt-out, and so that negated the Fourth Amendment argument, but perhaps not permanently. 
But they did rule in our favor, as Jim said, quite exhaustively on the Administrative Procedures Act issue. And they stated that the agency had to conduct notice and comment rulemaking, quote, promptly. And they ordered the agency to do that. So it's been a year since the court's decision in July of 2011. And uh, this week, we filed a petition for a writ of mandamus asking the court to force the agency to comply with the court's own order that the agency undertake public notice and comment rulemaking. We've seen no indication from the agency that they have started this process. Uh, We've seen no indication from the agency that they've even taken first steps on this process. And it's been a year. It's been a full 12 months since the court's order. And it's been two and a half years since Epic's original petition. And it's been three years since the agency initially started to rule out the body scanners as a primary screening method. So... In our mandamus, we highlighted case law that would suggest or would show, quite simply, that the agency's delay here is unreasonable. And that's the question under the law, whether or not this is a reasonable delay. Courts have found that a reasonable delay would be measured in days or weeks or months and not years. And years are what we're looking at here. Three years since the action, two and a half years since we filed our original petition, and a year since the court ordered the agency to undertake a rulemaking. The agency's delay here effectively prevents any sort of judicial review. As Jim highlighted under the APA, once an agency comes to a final rule, then members of the public can take the agency to court if they feel that that rule is arbitrary or capricious. And the court can then review the agency's action. Granted, it's a rather low bar, the arbitrary and capricious bar, but it's better than nothing. It allows for some judicial review. Here, the agency has completely evaded that possibility of judicial review because they've never actually issued a final rule that a court could review. They've also evaded the intent of Congress. Congress said that if you're going to put forth a new rule, you need to issue that notice and comment rulemaking 30 days before you start actually acting on that rule. That's never happened here. In fact, we're three years out from when the agency started its action. The agency's delay effectively undermines the entire purpose of public comment, which is to allow the public to weigh in on agency action, to promote a democratic process in which everyone has an opportunity to let the agency know what, whether or not they feel like this is a worthwhile action, whether it's cost-effective, whether it's worthwhile for the risks that it presents, whether it's worthwhile for the invasiveness of the action. And here, the agency has simply never asked the American public, how do you feel about this? And especially in light of the fact that there are ongoing radiation concerns and risks related to these machines. We've seen experts, uh, doctors Brenner, Agard, and several others come out and say repeatedly that these machines present a very real radiation risk, especially to pregnant women, to children, to the elderly, to people who are immunocompromised because they've had some sort of disease or cancer, and the machines present that very real radiation risk, but that risk has never been properly addressed by the agency. To date, the agency has never done a real independent review of that risk. They've relied almost entirely on the vendor-supplied numbers. There's never been any independent review. And that, in particular, is something that the court should take into account, because under a writ of mandamus, a health or safety risk is something that would definitely weigh in favor of the court stepping in and enforcing its own order. We've also seen that continual evidence that these machines are ineffective. What we saw in the procurement specifications that we obtained from TSA is that these machines were not designed to detect powdered explosives. And further evidence has borne that out. Both the GAO and the DHS Inspector General's office have issued reports stating that there are very strong vulnerabilities in these machines. And those vulnerabilities 
cut against the reasons to use these machines. If the machine is not effective at picking up powdered explosives, which are the threat that we face today, if these machines present very real radiation risks, if they're very costly, if they're very invasive, then why are we putting these machines in our airports? And that's the reason why the public should be allowed to comment on this. The public should be allowed to weigh those risks and those supposed benefits and let the agency know exactly how it feels. The federal government's interception of Americans' private communications has increased dramatically in recent years, but it's hard to get a handle on exactly how big that increase has been. Even U.S. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon has had trouble getting the NSA to fess up about how often the agency has violated the rights of Americans. Wyden described the troubling turn of events at the Cato Institute in July. To me... The importance of the events of last week are essentially twofold. The first is, last week was the first instance where the government has admitted that there is a violation of Fourth Amendment privacy rights that has taken place. That's essentially the first you know, significant news from last week. The second part of those news is this is the first time that the government has stated that the FISA court has reached the judgment that the spirit of the FISA Amendments Act has also been violated. So these were the important findings, in my view, of last week. They came about largely because I asked the intelligence community to declassify statements that I believed were true. I asked them in a classified way, so you get a sense of how sensitive and arduous the task is to constantly push these efforts to declassify documents and have some transparency and have some accountability is. So I submitted them in classified form. I asked that they be declassified and the two statements that I've given you reflect essentially what the government was willing to declassify that for the first time they've admitted that there's been a violation of the Fourth Amendment constitutional right to privacy, and also for the first time they have said that in their view, what the FISA court has stated, that the FISA Amendments Act, the spirit of the law, has also been violated as well. So... This, in my view, sets the backdrop now for an important debate that I hope is going to take place in the fall. I'm going to do everything I can to advance in the fall. The FISA Amendments Act, as all of you know, is up for reauthorization in the fall. I have put a public hold on the bill. It is my long-standing policy. Actually, Senator Grassley and I authored the proposal, which eventually became law requiring that senators who put holds do it publicly. But even before that, it was my longstanding policy to announce that I was putting a public hold on a piece of legislation I felt strongly about. I have done that with respect to the FISA Amendments Act. And with that, there will be an opportunity for a real debate in the fall. And I think the two disclosures that I've cited that were made last week, I think sort of sets the table for a different kind of debate. 
I can just tell you from the standpoint of putting my cards on the table as we begin, I think before this law is reauthorized, the public ought to be able to see more information about its impact on the privacy rights of law-abiding Americans, one, and I think protections for the privacy rights of law-abiding Americans needs to be strengthened. So that's sort of how I come to this in terms of what I'm working on as it relates to what will be on the floor in the fall and the backdrop of what happened last week. Now, let's spend a couple of minutes so that everybody at least is square in terms of what the background is here and how we got into this place. As you all know, if a law enforcement agency has a compelling bit of evidence that an American is a serious criminal, the officers go uh, to a judge to get a warrant to tap that individual's uh, phone. And anybody who watches The Wire or NCIS, you kind of got a pretty good idea already of how all that works. Now, what people sometimes forget is that the police officers on these shows and, of course, in real life, are building on something that the Founding Fathers thought was sacred ground, and that was the Fourth Amendment, what uh, was a bedrock uh, you know, principle that the government couldn't violate Americans' privacy with unreasonable searches and seizures. So in effect, if you wanted to get a warrant to search somebody's house, you had to show a judge. You had to show a judge that there was probable cause that you would, after the search, find evidence of a crime. Pretty brilliant concept, as usual. Founding Fathers got it pretty much right because it simultaneously protects individual privacy while at the same time saying to the government, you know, when you believe that there is evidence to believe that uh, a criminal is engaging in something that threatens public safety, the government's in a position to have a process to proceed. Now, to me, the next part of the discussion starts really in the 70s with Congress passing a law to govern wiretapping for intelligence purposes. That, of course, was the FISA legislation that allowed the government to get a warrant for somebody if there was evidence that that person was a spy or a member of an international terrorist group, even if they had not committed a crime as yet. It was based pretty much on the same concepts of warrants, probable cause, and it, of course, continues to be used today. After 9-11, the Bush administration decided that it needed additional surveillance authorities. They said, we've got to have additional surveillance authorities beyond what is in the FISA statute. Now, unfortunately, instead of asking the Congress to change the law, the Bush administration came up with a warrantless wiretapping program that, as we've come to know, operated in secret for a number of years. This, of course, like everything else, as I constantly tell my colleagues, eventually becomes public, and there was a huge uproar. And many of my constituents certainly were livid when they learned about the warrantless wiretapping you know, program, as were people on the Hill. So at that point, there was a pretty passionate you know, debate. Congress passed the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, that replaced the warrantless wiretapping program with new authorities for the government to collect the phone calls and emails of those who were believed to be foreigners outside the United States. 
the centerpiece of that act. And a big part of my concern is a provision that has come to be known as Section 702 of the FISA statute. That's the provision that gave the government the new authorities to collect the communications of people who are believed to be foreigners outside the United States. And unlike the traditional FISA authorities and unlike the wiretapping authorities, it did not involve requiring that law enforcement and intelligence uh, officials obtain individual warrants. For this reason, it contains language, language that is specifically intended to limit the government's ability to use these authorities to deliberately spy on law-abiding Americans. Congress also put an expiration date on these new authorities. That was designed to make sure that there would be ongoing and continuous review. And, of course, that next expiration date is December 2012, which is why I have put this hold on the legislation that has passed out of the Intelligence Committee and will be debated undoubtedly in the fall. The greatest story ever told, according to economist Stephen Landsberg, is the dramatic increase in wealth that has occurred in the historical equivalent of the blink of an eye. He told this story at the Cato Institute in July. I want to talk to you about economic growth. And the story of economic growth begins about 100,000 years ago when modern humans first emerged. And then we've got the timeline here. For the next 99,800 years or so, nothing happened. There were, oh, you know, there were some wars, there was some political intrigue, there was the invention of agriculture, there was the Renaissance, but none of that mattered. None of that mattered in the sense that none of it had any appreciable effect on the quality of life for any substantial number of people. From the dawn of history up until about 200 years ago, just 10 generations, nearly everybody who ever lived lived right around the subsistence level, the modern equivalent of maybe $400, $600 a year. Oh, there were times and places where it was a little better than that, even some extremely fortunate times and places where people earned maybe the equivalent of $1,000 per year in today's terms. And of course, there were always tiny nobilities, kings and queens and dukes and princes who lived much, much better, but they were numerically insignificant. So that if you had been born any time prior to the Industrial Revolution, prior to about 200 years ago, the odds are astronomical that you would have lived on the modern equivalent of 400, 600, or if you were extremely lucky, $1,000 a year, just like your parents, just like your grandparents, just like your children, and just like your grandchildren. And then a couple hundred years ago, something happened. Incomes, at least in the West, started to rise. By the year 1800, incomes were rising at about three quarters of a percent per year in the West. A couple decades later, that was happening around the world. And then it got better. Just 20 years later, incomes were rising at one and a half percent a year. This was unprecedented, this kind of sustained growth. It had never happened before in the history of the world. Since 1960, in this country, per capita growth, that's per capita growth corrected for inflation, that's income per person corrected for inflation, has grown at about 2.3% a year. 
since 1960 on average. To translate those percentages into something concrete, let's think about what that means for a typical middle-class family. Suppose that you are a middle-class person with a modest income of, let's say, $50,000 a year. Then at that 2.3% growth rate that we have sustained for the last 60 years or so, if we continue at that growth rate, then in 25 years, your children will be earning the inflation-adjusted equivalent of $89,000 a year. And if we continue that growth rate, their children, 25 years after that, will be earning the inflation-adjusted equivalent of $158,000 a year, from $50,000 to $89,000 to $158,000 in two generations. That's the power of economic growth. And if you extrapolate that out a little bit further, for, say, another 400 years at 2.3% growth per year, then your descendants will be earning approximately $1 million per day, <laughs> unless, of course, they rise above mediocrity and live a little better. And I want to stress that these are not some future inflation-ravaged dollars we're talking about. This is after corrections for inflation. That's the equivalent of a million of today's dollars. Now, I don't know whether we're ever going to reach that point 400 years from now. But I do know that it's a conservative extrapolation from a centuries-old trend. It's conservative because it assumes that we're going to continue that 2.3% growth rate for the next 400 years. Whereas, in fact, what has happened since growth first started 200 years ago is that the growth rate itself has continually risen. If you find this an implausible number, you might pause and reflect for a moment on how implausible your lifestyle would have sounded if I had tried to explain it to somebody 400 years ago. You might also meditate on the history of skepticism. This guy is Julius Frontinus, who in 100 AD observed that inventions have long since reached their limit. There's no hope for future development. This is the history of per capita income in the United States. The United States is sort of a, a medium growth country. Our growth compared to other countries has been steadier, and it started earlier than most, which has been very good for us. But we're a pretty average country in terms of the level of growth. This is all corrected for inflation. This is all $2,005. And you can see that incredible march of prosperity over the years. We have just had, of course, a pretty rocky couple of years. This only goes up to 2010, but you can see the dip there at the beginning of the crash. That's the kind of thing that happens from time to time. It happened most spectacularly in the 1930s here, where we had a Great Depression. Here's what happened in the Great Depression. Incomes fell back to where they had been about 25 years before. And people found it intolerable. They had to live the way their parents lived, and they found it intolerable. They had to live at a level which their great-grandparents would have thought unimaginable luxury, and they found it intolerable. That's how much we have internalized the idea that things are supposed to keep getting better. But that's a new idea. Nobody before the Industrial Revolution thought that. Today, we expect our cars and our entertainment systems and our computers to keep dazzling us with something new every year. We expect that, but that underlying expectation is new. In the 18th century, here's something you never saw in the 18th century. A politician asking, are you better off than you were four years ago? 
Nobody asked that because in the 18th century, nobody expected to be better off than they were four years ago. It's not just incomes. Let's look at what's happened to our leisure time. A hundred years ago, the average work week in this country was 65 hours. Today, it's 33. A hundred years ago, 6% of manufacturing workers took vacations. Today, it's 100, uh, virtually 100%. In 1910, 26% of 65-year-old men were retired. And that's at a time when most men didn't make it to 65. Of those who made it to 65, they were really old. Three quarters of them were still working. Today, 90% of 65-year-old men are retired. Child labor was common in 1910. Boys entered the workforce routinely in their early teens. Today in this country, it's practically unheard of. So we are working less per week, fewer hours per week now. We are working fewer weeks per year, fewer years per lifetime. The average housekeeper in 1910 spent 12 hours a day on laundry, cooking, sweeping, cleaning. Today, it's about one and a half hours. Here is the typical housewife's laundry day in the year 1910. First, she pours water to the stove, heats it over coals, pours it into the big tubs there, washes the clothes in the tubs, wrings out each individual item separately, either by hand or with a mechanical wringer, and then moves on to the oppressive task of ironing using the heavy flat irons that are continuously heated over the hot stove. The entire process in the year 1900 takes eight and a half hours. She walks over a mile in the process. We know this because the United States government used to hire researchers to follow housewives around as they did their laundry and count every step. And we know from those uh, old research studies that doing the laundry required eight and a half hours and a mile of walking. By 1940, our heroine has a washing machine, and now her laundry day is down to two and a half hours, and she walks 665 feet. Today, nobody spends two and a half hours on their laundry. You throw the laundry in, and if you have one of those really new fancy machines, it emails you to let you know when it's done. <laughs> it's not just laundry. It's not just cooking and cleaning and sewing. In the year 1900, most houses in this country did not have central heat, did not have plumbing. So other routine household tasks included lugging seven tons of coal and 9,000 gallons of water around the house every year. Just since 1965, the average American has gained six hours a week of leisure. That's the amount of time that we spend in the office or commuting is down by six hours a week for the average American. That's the equivalent of getting seven extra vacation weeks per year. That's just over the last uh, 40, 50 years or so. So we're getting richer, we're working less, and on top of that, the quality of the goods we buy is improving. If you doubt that, go pick up a 40-year-old Sears catalog, leaf through it, and ask yourself if there's anything in there you want to buy. It's not, you know, it's not just electronics. Take a product like healthcare. Here's a shocking number. If you look at the quality of healthcare in the poorest parts of Africa today, and if you Control for the effects of AIDS, and there, there's an argument for doing this and there's an argument for not doing it, but if you say that, well, AIDS is a special one-time thing that is not part of the general trend of healthcare, so I'm gonna take the effects of that out. 
then the healthcare outcomes that we are seeing in the poorest parts of Africa today, measured by infant mortality, measured by life expectancy, measured by pretty much anything you want to measure, are almost exactly the same as what we were seeing in the United States of America in 1975. 1975 in the United States, you were getting the same quality of healthcare that the poorest Africans are getting today. And now I want to ask you, which would you rather pay? Would you rather pay 1975 prices for that 1975 healthcare, or would you rather pay today's prices for today's healthcare? I venture to guess that there is not an informed person in the world who would choose to go back to 1975, and that's got to tell you that for all the problems with our system and all the hype about rising costs, healthcare today is a better bargain than it has ever been. The moral of all that is that increases in measured income, even the phenomenal increases in measured income that we've seen for the last 200 years, grossly understate the story of how rapidly the world is getting better. Henry VIII had a much higher measured income than nearly anyone in this room, than certainly nearly anyone in the, in, and probably than anyone in this room. He ruled half of England, but I bet you he would have traded half his wealth for modern plumbing, a lifetime supply of antibiotics, and access to the internet. Now, along with all of that wealth that we have generated, has come another brand new phenomenon, wealth inequality. Per capita income in the United States is 70 times what it is in the poorest parts of Africa. The world has never seen inequality on that level before. That's brand new. You know where it came from? You know why that phenomenon is new? Because wealth is new. The reason we have all this inequality for the first time is that we have wealth for the first time. And if you think inequality is a problem, it's worth reflecting that it is at least a tremendously fabulous problem to have. It's the problem of how to divide up all this amazing wealth that nobody would have ever predicted we'd be able to generate in the first place. If you want to think about issues of inequality, and I'm not going to go into great depth with that today, but I do want to mention a couple things that you want to keep in mind when you think about inequality. First of all, nobody in the world today is poorer than they would have been before the Industrial Revolution. I know that because if you were poorer than you would have been before the Industrial Revolution, you would have starved to death by now. Another thing to keep in mind is that economic growth is new. It's only a couple hundred years old. We've been around for 100,000 years. We've had 200 years of growth. This process is just getting started. It's just getting started, and it has started some places later than others. And with some, in some places, it's gone by fits and starts more than it has in others. But we have not begun to see the power of what economic growth can do on a worldwide basis. And we should remember, too, that in the long run, a rising tide lifts all boats. Here, after all, is what economic growth has done for the poorest Americans. Let's look at households below the poverty level in America. 98% have refrigerators. 67% have washers and dryers. 96% have color TVs. 75% of those with over 300 channels. I grew up with three black and white channels. 68% have air conditioning. Many of the others live in climates where air conditioning is superfluous. 63% have internet access at home. This is households below the poverty level. When you survey people at that level and ask them, do you have enough food? 
93% answer yes. Do you have any smoke or odors that bother you in your neighborhood? 93% say no. Any medical needs? 86% say no. Any roof or ceiling leaks? 90% say no. It is more difficult to lead the life of a poor American than it is to lead the life of most people in this room. The difference between that life and the life that everybody took for granted 200 years ago is almost unspeakably great. Beyond that, you remember those leisure gains that I mentioned a little earlier? I said that the average American has gained the equivalent of seven vacation weeks per year just in the last 40 years. Well, that's been distributed very unequally, in fact. The poorest Americans have gained twice as much, the equivalent of 14 weeks of leisure. Now, nobody, I think, would want to claim that these great increases in leisure fully compensate for the differences in income. But it's also true that big increases in leisure are not nothing. We don't live by bread alone. Our happiness comes not just from our incomes, it also comes from our free time and the time that we have to spend with our friends, the time we have to spend with our hobbies, the time we have to spend with our favorite TV shows. I think it's worth keeping in mind that over the last 40 years, if you're worried about inequality, you might want to keep in mind that the big relative winners in the income derby have been the small relative winners in the leisure derby and vice versa. Those people who have gained the least income have gained the most leisure. One might also point out that the quality of that leisure has been improving. 50 years ago, the rich man and the poor man spent their leisure time in very different ways. Nowadays, the rich man and the poor man are pretty much surfing the same internet and watching those same 500 cable channels. So there's been a great equalization there as well. When we turn to Asia and Africa, they are, uh, the poor there are considerably worse off than the poor in the United States. But we are seeing in many places the same patterns that we saw in the West set back by 150 years or so. Take child labor, for example. In Asia and many parts of Africa, incomes are about the same as they were in the United States in the year 1840. And people send their kids to work at just about the same rate that Americans did in the year 1840. Moreover, we know historically the patterns in the West, in the United States, and in England of how people pulled their kids out of the workforce as their incomes rose above certain threshold levels. We're seeing those same patterns in Africa and Asia. People are pulling their kids out of the workforce as they go over those same threshold income levels. Now, you might have heard that child labor in the third world is caused by big multinational corporations throwing their influence around and convincing people to send their kids to work against their own interests. If that's your theory, then you've got to explain why Americans and Englishmen were sending their kids to work in 1840 at pretty much exactly the same rate at a time when there were no multinational corporations around to influence them. Poverty is a terrible thing. Poverty, it means facing terrible choices. Like, should I send my kid to work or should I send my kid to bed hungry? Poor people in various cultures at various times have faced those questions and have pretty much all settled them in the same ways. At certain levels of income, you send them to work. At higher levels of income, you take them out. It is, I think, the height of arrogance for those of us who have gotten past that stage to look at other people who are now facing that and saying, you ought to do it 
very differently than we did. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring is credited with launching the modern environmental movement. In a new book from the Cato Institute, Silent Spring at 50, The False Crises of Rachel Carson, national experts explore the science the book was built on and its policy consequences. And they find the book is problematic, slanted, and in many instances, just plain wrong. Read more about this and order a copy at cato.org store. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.